Chapter One of Book Ten of Les Miserables, Volume Four by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate McKenzie. Les Miserables, Volume Four by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book Ten, the fifth of June, eighteen thirty-two. Chapter One, the surface of the question. Of what is revolt composed? Of nothing and of everything, of an electricity disengaged little by little, of a flame suddenly darting forth, of a wandering force, of a passing breath. This breath encounters heads which speak, brains which dream, souls which suffer, passions which burn, wretchedness which howls, and bears them away. Whither? At random? Athwart the state? The laws? Athwart prosperity and the insolence of others? Irritated convictions? embittered enthusiasms agitated indignations instincts of war which have been repressed youthful courage which has been exalted generous blindness curiosity the taste for change the thirst for the unexpected the sentiment which causes one to take pleasure in reading the posters for the new play and love the prompter's whistle at the theatre the vague hatreds rancours disappointments every vanity which thinks that destiny has bankrupted it discomfort empty dreams ambitious that are hedged about whoever hopes for a downfall some outcome in short at the very bottom the rabble that mud which catches fire such are the elements of revolt that which is grandest and that which is basest the beings who prowl outside of all bounds awaiting an occasion bohemians vagrants vagabonds of the crossroads those who sleep at night in a desert of houses with no other roof than the cold clouds of heaven those who each day demand their bread from chance and not from toil the unknown of poverty and nothingness the bare-armed the bare-footed belong to revolt whoever cherishes in his soul a secret revolt against any deed whatever on the part of the state of life or of fate is ripe for riot and as soon as it makes its appearance he begins to quiver and to feel himself borne away with the whirlwind revolt is a sort of water-spout in the social atmosphere which forms suddenly in certain conditions of temperature and which, as it eddies about, mounts, descends, thunders, tears, raises, crushes, demolishes, uproots, bearing with it great natures and small, the strong man and the feeble mind, the tree-trunk and the stalk of straw. Woe to him whom it bears away, as well as to him whom it strikes. It breaks the one against the other. It communicates to those whom it seizes an indescribable and extraordinary power. It fills the first-comer with the force of events. It converts everything into projectiles. It makes a cannonball of a rough stone and a general of a porter. If we are to believe certain oracles of crafty political views, a little revolt is desirable from the point of view of power. System, revolt strengthens those governments which it does not overthrow. It puts the army to the test. It consecrates the bourgeoisie. It draws out the muscles of the police. It demonstrates the force of the social framework. It is an exercise in gymnastics. It is almost hygiene. Power is in better health after a revolt as a man is after a good rubbing down. Revolt, thirty years ago, was regarded from still other points of view. There is for everything a theory which proclaims itself good sense. Philintus against Alcestis. Mediation offered between the false and the true. Explanation, admonition, rather haughty extenuation, which, because it is mingled with blame and excuse, thinks itself wisdom, and is often only pedantry. A whole political school called the Golden Mean has become the outcome of this. As between cold water and hot water, it is the lukewarm water party. This school, with its false depth, 
all on the surface, which dissects effects without going back to first causes, chides from its height of a demi-science the agitation of the public square. If we listen to this school, the riots which complicated the affair of 1830 deprived that great event of a portion of its purity. The revolution of July had been a fine popular gale, abruptly followed by blue sky. They made the cloudy sky reappear. They caused that revolution, at first so remarkable for its unanimity, to degenerate into a quarrel. In the revolution of July, as in all progress accomplished by fits and starts, there had been secret fractures. These riots rendered them perceptible. It might have been said, ah, oh, this is broken. After the revolution of July, one was sensible only of deliverance. After the riots, one was conscious of a catastrophe. All revolt closes the shops, depresses the funds, throws the exchange into consternation, suspends commerce, clogs business, precipitates failures. No more money. Private fortunes rendered uneasy, public credit shaken, industry disconcerted, capital withdrawing, work at a discount, fear everywhere, counter-shocks in every town, hence gulfs. It has been calculated that the first day of a riot cost France twenty millions, the second day forty, the third sixty, a three days uprising cost one hundred and twenty millions. That is to say, if only the financial result be taken into consideration, it is equivalent to a disaster a shipwreck or a lost battle which should annihilate a fleet of sixty ships of the line no doubt historically uprisings have their beauty the war of the pavements is no less grandiose and no less pathetic than the war of thickets in the one there is the soul of forests in the other the heart of cities the one has jean chouin the other has a jean revolts have illuminated with a red glare all the most original points of the parisian character generosity devotion stormy gaiety students proving that bravery forms part of intelligence the national guard invincible bivouacs of shopkeepers fortresses of street urchins contempt of death on the part of passers-by schools and legions clash together after all between the combatants there was only a difference of age the race is the same it is the same stoical men who died at the age of twenty for their ideas at forty for their families the army always a sad thing in civil wars opposed prudence to audacity uprisings while proving popular intrepidity also educated the courage of the bourgeois this is well but is all this worth the bloodshed and to the bloodshed add the future darkness progress compromised uneasiness among the best men honest liberals in despair foreign absolutism happy in these wounds dealt to revolution by its own hand the vanquished of eighteen thirty triumphing and saying we told you so Add Paris enlarged, possibly, but France most assuredly diminished. Add, for all must needs be told, the massacres, which have too often dishonoured the victory of order grown ferocious over liberty gone mad. To sum up all, uprisings have been disastrous. Thus speaks that approximation to wisdom with which the bourgeoisie, that approximation to the people, so willingly contents itself. For our part, we reject this word uprisings as too large and consequently as too convenient we make a distinction between one popular movement and another popular movement we do not inquire whether an uprising costs as much as a battle why a battle in the first place here the question of war comes up is war less of a scourge than an uprising is of a calamity and then are all uprisings calamities and what if the revolt of july did cost a hundred and twenty millions the establishment of Philip V in Spain cost France two milliards. Even at the same price, we should prefer the 14th of July. However, we reject these figures, which appear to be reasons and which are only words. An uprising being given, we examine it by itself. 
In all that is said by the doctrinarian objection above presented, there is no question of anything but effect. We seek the cause. We will be explicit. End of Book 10, Chapter 1 Recording by Kate McKenzie